Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 16 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today we'll be speaking with Chantal Cook. Chantal is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, travel writer, and co-founder of the UK's first ethical radio station, Passion for the Planet. She has been a vegetarian for over 30 years and is passionate about promoting plant-based, cruelty-free eating and helping restaurants and other food venues cater to and benefit from the growing vegetarian, vegan, and flexitarian market. Welcome, Chantal. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. For the benefit of our audience today, I met Chantal a couple months ago in Greece. We were at a conference together, and I heard Chantal talking about what it was like to be a vegetarian while traveling. Would you like to share with people what that experience is like and why it's such a pain point for you? I was going to say, yeah, it's not a great experience, generally speaking. Even when people do think that they're catering for vegetarians or vegans, it seems to be that, I don't know, there seems to be a mass consciousness that the only thing that we eat is risotto. So it really doesn't matter where I go, I always get offered risotto, which in itself I wouldn't mind too much, except that obviously getting it every single time you go anywhere is not great. And I don't find it a particularly tasty or healthy meal. So that's one of my constant things when I'm traveling and then the other is just a lack of understanding really so I have had things before where I've checked I said has this got meat in it and they've gone no 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 that's fine then I've got it and there's actually little pieces of meat and I've said oh I kind of thought there was no meat they said well it's only a tiny bit which of course is really the point um or even when people are actually really trying to help and but don't understand so in Spain, for example, I remember ordering something and it came up with bacon on it. And the guy, when he did it, he said, I put a bit of bacon on there for you. I thought you'd like it. <laughs> Obviously not understanding at all that the whole reason I'd ordered that dish was because it had no bacon on it. So it can be very difficult, sometimes through lack of thought and sometimes actually just because people genuinely don't understand but are trying to do something nice but just don't get it. But yeah, generally speaking, the overall experience is not positive. Oh, sorry right. to hear that, Chantal. May I know why you decided to become a vegetarian? What inspired you? Animal welfare, predominantly. I really don't believe in the way in which we treat animals and in terms of farming them, intense, particularly intensive farming for meat. I don't believe in the cruelty. I just think everything about it is fundamentally wrong. It's not that it's fundamentally wrong to eat an animal. You know, we are omnivores. Um, and there are carnivores out there, you know, which are obligate carnivores and can only eat meat. So it's not the eating of other things that I fundamentally have a problem with, although I would choose not to do it. It's the way in which we do it. It's the cruelty inherent in that industry. And I want no part of that. And people say to me things like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I only buy meat that's organic or I only buy it when I know, you know, with the farmer and so on. I really can't think of any place where I've ever been where I've honestly thought 
that the way in which the animal is treated from birth to death, including its death, is in any way acceptable. And I want no part of that. And even if there is somewhere out there where that would be the case, I cannot check that when I'm eating that food. And so I don't want to take the risk. What are your thoughts on veganism? Vegan is definitely, in my opinion, the way to go. And I'm edging towards being vegan. When I first became vegetarian, I thought it was about the cruelty inherent in the killing of the animals. That was my original sort of feelings about it. Having done more research, I realized that actually the dairy industry is grossly cruel as well. For a start, in order for a cow to give milk, the cow has to be pregnant in the first instance. So then the cow produces the baby. The baby is ripped away from the cow within 24 hours, which is not in the least bit natural or pleasant for either baby or mother. And then if that baby is a male, it's killed. So actually, in order for me to drink milk, there is a death of an animal involved and lots of cruelty. And of course, if you think about the cows in the way that they're kept, and then the fact that they have to be pregnant continually, the fact that they're constantly milked. I mean, again, if you think about that from a human perspective, you were just constantly pregnant and breastfeeding, you would be exhausted. You know, you wouldn't last very long. And that's why we know women in history previously didn't last very long and often due to that very reason. And in fact, cows that are milked don't last very long. So there is a lot of inherent cruelty in that. And therefore, I do think that is absolutely the way to go. To be vegan when you travel is even more difficult in most countries. At least if I say, well, it's okay, I'll eat some eggs or I'll eat some cheese, then it does make life a little bit easier. But at home, definitely vegan. That is, in my opinion, most definitely the way to go. Chantal, how long have you been vegetarian? vegetarian for about 30 years um so long before i think most people were thinking about it and certainly in the beginning it was much more challenging than it is now i mean in fairness to the uk traveling around the uk it's relatively easy to get vegetarian or vegan food and some countries are really good berlin for example fantastic for vegan food vienna pretty good so it's much, much easier than it used to be. But yeah, 30 years ago, people thought, I mean, obviously I wasn't the only vegetarian in the universe, but a lot of people did think I was totally bonkers. And it did make eating very, very difficult. Just to segue to what you were saying, I grew up in India and my parents when are vegetarian. And so when we would travel, they would come to the US and there's that joke for Indian vegetarians who say, oh, I'll have the burger without the burger, please. <laughs> you know, And that was all they could have back then. But things have stopped. Yes. And I live in California now, which is just an amazing place for people who are vegetarians and vegan. And uh, life has changed a lot for travelers who come here. But I remember those days being really hard for my parents. Yes, I really sympathize with the whole I'll have the burger without the burger thing, because that is pretty much what what I've had to do. And the number of times I've asked for something and they've literally I've watched them just take the piece of meat off the plate and hand me the rest and just think. Hmm, that wasn't quite what I was thinking. And I'll accept it on one level, sure. But on the other hand, where I do get irritated and more and more irritated is that somehow I'm charged the same as everybody else as well. So I'm getting half the meal. And in fact, the piece of the meal that you're taking away is generally the most expensive piece of the meal. And yet, either there's no replacement or I'm still expected to, to pay the same as everybody else. Even so, it's not like I've left it on my plate. It's I've asked you not to put it on my plate in the first place. And I think that's another reason why people who are vegan and vegetarian and travel tend not to eat out. Chantal, what came, what inspired you to start the Passion for the Planet radio station? What was the critical moment in your life when you said, this is what I want to do? 
for some reason which I can't explain I'd always wanted to have a radio station ever since I'd kind of wanted to work in radio I thought what a great thing and the reason that I love radio so much is because it's I think it's one of the most powerful of all the of all the media because if you think about it if you're going to read a magazine or, a, or an article in a newspaper or for that matter sit down to watch a particular tv program all of those things require a proactive choice to do that so what that means is that you will often self-sort to find the kinds of things that you're already interested in or the kinds of things that you already agree with so although that's slightly different in a magazine or newspaper where you're perhaps just picking up the newspaper and kind of reading through the articles even then you're going to skip over those articles which don't interest you so you know a good example is I'm not interested in sport, so I never look at the sports pages. So even if there is something of interest in there, I'm never going to see it because I'm self-sorting not to look at the sports pages. So that's what tends to happen with print media and with television. Radio, on the other hand, is consumed quite differently because people tend to have it on in the background and then they'll just kind of leave it on and listen while they're driving or washing up or whatever it is they're doing, which means that radio has that possibility to say, here's something, and if they do it well, and they sell it well at the beginning, and it's not too long, then actually a lot of people will just put up with it initially. They'll just kind of go, oh, I'll listen to that anyway, because I can't be bothered to turn over, and anyway, in a minute there'll be something else, or there'll be some good music. And then if you're doing your job properly, then people go, oh, actually, I didn't know I was interested in that, or oh, I've learned something I, I hadn't realized before. So radio has that unique ability to reach people before they self-sort or instead of them self-sorting and that I think is why I love it so much. I also really love radio because it's a very fast medium so you can turn around content incredibly quickly in a way that you can't for television for example because obviously you've got to you know get the pictures edit them etc whereas radio is a much faster medium so that's why I love radio that's the first bit and I was working in radio for both the independent sector and for the BBC but I'd always felt that and I still think this is the case with radio actually even now, but certainly then that a lot of it just was inane rubbish. You know, it was like who was going out with who and who'd been seen with whom and all this kind of stuff that really just didn't matter and wasn't important. And I felt, and maybe slightly arrogantly, but I nevertheless felt that radio being so powerful could be used for so much more. Why is it always just used for celebrity tittle-tattle and what's, what's going on at this club or this concert or whatever? Why not use it for something that would really give people more information, help to inform them, help to um, give them answers to questions that perhaps they didn't even know they had? That's another thing. I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And yet radio can open that door and go, there's a whole world here that you perhaps didn't even realize existed. So I felt, A, radio is a fantastic medium, and B, it wasn't being used to talk about the things which I felt were important. And being me, the things that I thought were important were things like the environment and our, our impact on the environment, animals, um, animal welfare, and health as well, because those two things are combined. Obviously, being vegetarian and vegan is a healthier way to live. I don't personally do it for health reasons, but that's why lots of people choose to be vegan or vegetarian. And equally, looking after the planet and our environment also at the same time looks after our health. So to me, it felt like those things were the things that were most important. So Chantal, how long have you been doing the radio station? And also, what were the stepping stones that led you to it? 
So the stepping stones to launching the radio station, first thing was obviously coming up with the concept. Obviously, that's most important. Second then was applying for a license. So Ofcom in the UK licenses radio stations. It controls the bandwidth that's available. And at the time, they were releasing new um, DAB, which is digital audio broadcasting bandwidth, to sit alongside the FM and AM bandwidth that we already have in the UK. The licenses were advertised and then you have to apply for one of those licenses. Now, unlike FM licenses where one person applies or one company applies for one license, with DAB, DAB is structured in a multiplex system, which means that a number of stations broadcast off one multiplex. So in order to win a license from Ofcom, you have to join a consortium, which is then applying for that license. And these licenses are awarded based on the quality of the or the variability, if you like, of the output that's available. In other words, is it increasing choice for the UK audience? It's not like the bandwidth for, say, mobile phones, which is done on an auction basis. This is done on a kind of quantity and choice basis. So first step was concept. Second step then was selling it into a consortium. There were three consortia applying for this particular license for London at the time. We got in with one of those consortium. Then the next thing was putting together obviously the license application which included us and all the other people that wanted to be on that multiplex then there was a huge amount of work getting lots of letters of support coming into Ofcom to say that we in particular were the radio station that people wanted to listen to because that would influence Ofcom's decision so we did a massive amount of work on lobbying people to write letters and encouraging them to write into Ofcom and so on then Ofcom go away make their decision they made the right decision and um, gave the license to the consortium that we were with, which included us. And in fact, they did say that we were one of the reasons that that particular consortium won the license. Then the point at which you win the license, um, the, the bandwidth gets allocated. And then you have usually a year to 18 months between that point and actually being able to launch. So then the next job was to raise half a million pounds in order to be able to launch the radio station, which we did. And then it was obviously the getting the offices, putting the studios together, create, um, creating all the initial content to get started, designing the playout systems, etc., and then obviously pressing the button and launching the radio station. And we launched in um, September of 2002. Well, congratulations, Chantal. That's, that's brilliant. It takes a lot of work and you are there. That's, that's fantastic. It sounds like you've also written a lot for a number of high-profile publications. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so my background is sort of as a journalist and although predominantly that's been on radio radio still requires written journalism skills because you have to do the research then often you're writing a cue for the front of an interview uh, and then of course you're researching it in terms of which questions you're going to ask and then you want to make sure that you're asking questions in a way that gets you the kind of answer that you're looking for i don't mean the the content of the answer, you know, you're not influencing what the person's saying and their views, but you want to make sure that the questions you ask them are going to, are going to give you a good interview at the end of it, are going to get you something that's interesting. So all of those to me are journalism skills, whether they're written down, spoken or any other way for that matter. Yes, predominantly I started off doing radio, although I have to say I did write my very first magazine, which was about animals when I was eight years old at primary school. So I obviously had some inclination about being a journalist quite early on. 
but by career wise, yes, predominantly radio. But as I said, because it has this journalism aspect to it as well, some people then started asking me to write or I thought, oh, I could write a piece or I'd pitch something where I'd done a radio interview but thought this would actually make a really good written piece as well for this particular magazine. And then I started pitching and writing for my magazines as well. And then because I got quite well known for environmental issues, writing through the radio station, then more and more magazines would come to me and ask me to write pieces specifically about the environment or about conservation and those kinds of things. So it was really, I came to the written journalism through the radio rather than vice versa. I think one of the biggest lessons here, Chantal, is that you actually took the step to do it. You took action. And when we were talking before the show, you were saying how taking action is one of the most important steps. That was kind of your eureka moment. Obviously, there was quite a lot of, I suppose, angst around it. Was I doing the right thing? You know, we were raising a lot of money. Um, there's, you know, there's always that little voice in the back of your head, which is sort of nibbling away at your confidence a bit. And also, we were finding it very difficult to bring in enough money to fund the radio station because it, it's that those licenses, once you are awarded a DAB license, although the license itself doesn't cost you anything to get it in the first instance, to then broadcast upon it is very expensive. And so we were struggling to bring in at the time enough money to fund the radio station. And that's when I started doing the whole, let's go and go on workshops and do the whole Tony Robbins thing. And, you know, all the stuff that I think lots and lots of people have done. And I would say that was a big mistake <laughs> because all of that was in short, way too much navel gazing, you know, way too much. Oh, find someone that you can watch and do what they do. Read this book, you know, meditate on this choose a huge goal, think about massive visualization, all of these sorts of things, all in the end, when it finally came to it for me, seemed to be ways of delaying just taking another step, picking up the phone and doing something. Yes, I've got nothing against meditation and I've got nothing against speaking to people who've been there before you and have got expertise. All of these things are really good, but only if they push you to taking action, not if you use them as an excuse for not taking action. So the end result of that is I tend to do much, much, much less of that sort of stuff these days and much, much, much more of just taking action. Because I think often, even you know which way you want to step anyway, because your gut tells you this is the way you want to go, in which case just get on with it. If your gut is going, oh, I don't know, should I go left or right? I'm not really sure. Then that's probably because you either don't have enough information or actually either way is absolutely fine. So in which case, take action, take a step. And once you've taken a step, quite often you will then go, oh, actually that really doesn't feel right. In which case, fine, go back and go the other way. Or you will take that step and go, yeah, do you know what? This feels okay. I'm going to take another step. It's a bit of a metaphor, if you like, but it's not much different from when you're trying to find your way down a street or down, you know, on a map or something. You go a little bit of a distance. You look and go, yeah, that's okay. And you keep going. Or you go, no, nope, that's a dead end. I don't think so. And you turn around. It's not that much different, really. Stop thinking about it. Stop finding lots of reasons not to take action. Stop giving your power, if you like, away to other people and just take a step. For goodness sake, just take a step. Acknowledge what you're doing and take that first step and, and see how it goes. See how you feel about it. I think that's absolutely true. And of course, that's part of how I feel about the vegetarian and vegan food thing as well, is that, you know, 
let's let's take that step because it because the longer we keep eating meat the more we are part of that problem because meat's not only bad for our health it's not only got the inherent animal cruelty issues but it is incredibly bad for the environment as well food is one of the most environmentally impactful let's call it rather than damaging because obviously we can't live without food but it has a massive impact on the environment more so than transport does so often when we think about travel for example we think that it's our plane journey that is causing the biggest problem and there's no doubt the plane journey is not great for the environment at all and it's particularly bad if we're flying rather than driving or on a train or something because of where the pollutants go into the atmosphere and so on but you might well find that by ditching meat you actually counteract all of your flights. Now, I've looked at me being vegan and the number of flights I do, and I do quite a few. And actually, I could almost sit there and go, do you know what? I'm okay because I don't eat meat and it makes such a massive difference. All of these things are things that we can do. And I think we, miss, we misunderstand just how much the food we eat, and in particular, the meat we eat, what an environmental impact that has. Speaking of tourism and how being vegetarian influences and impacts that, Chantal, is there a concern that you see in the food and beverage tourism industry these days and, and how might you address that? The tourism, food and beverage tourism industry is a little bit behind the times, to be honest. Uh, I think it's really interesting how they're not embracing this at all and yet there is such a big opportunity. So when you consider the number of vegetarians and vegans there are in the UK, so around 7 million roughly, plus you have all the flexitarians. So flexitarians are people who are choosing to eat less meat. They're perhaps not going completely vegetarian, but they're most definitely choosing to cut down on the amount of meat they're eating. So all of these people are looking for meat-free dishes and they're not finding them. And what happens when you don't find them is either they have to just go, if they're flexitarian, they go, well, that's a shame, I'm gonna have to eat the meat. Um, which of course is having an environmental impact. Or if you're a vegetarian and a vegan, then what you do is you go off and you make your own food. You go self-catering. And if you also consider that that may only be, say, the 7 million vegetarians and vegans in the UK, but those people have got partners as well. A lot of those partners won't necessarily be vegan or vegetarian. My partner's not. He's flexitarian. But he's not going to come into a restaurant where I can't eat. So that restaurant, if it's not catering for me, is also not catering for him. And that's two people you've lost. And if I'm traveling in a bigger group, then it's more people. So in answer to your question, no, I don't think they're doing very well at it at all. And number two, I think there's a massive opportunity there to make money that they are basically, pardon the pun, but leaving on the table. And Chantal, just for those of us who don't know, can you share a little bit more on what a flexitarian, who a flexitarian is, what that means? Sure. It might be handy if I go through all of them because people often ask me, what's the difference? Yeah, that'd be great. If you like, at the strictest end is a vegan. So a vegan eats no animal products at all. So it's not just that they don't eat flesh, but they also don't eat milk, eggs, and in fact, honey. Um, Honey obviously comes from an animal. So therefore that would be a no-no to a vegan. So anything that comes from the exploitation of an animal in any way is a no for a vegan. Then there's a vegetarian. So vegetarians generally only eat things that don't require the animal to have died. So in other words, they will eat dairy and they will eat eggs, but they wouldn't eat any flesh. And that would include no fish. So fish is an animal. 
it's, a, it's the flesh of the animal, therefore a vegetarian wouldn't eat it. If you're a pescatarian, then you're a bit like a vegetarian, except that you do also eat fish. That's the difference between a vegetarian and a pescatarian. So again, it's a little bit annoying when I say I'm vegetarian and people go, oh, but we've got some fish for you. It's like, nope, I'm not pescatarian, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> so that's a kind of a, a thing to remember as well, is that it, there is a difference. And then flexitarian, are people who are generally trying to cut down on meat more often they're cutting down on flesh of animal of red meat for example and perhaps pork and lambs and um, chicken as well but predominantly they're often looking at red meat often not thinking so much about fish but that will depend on the individual so these are people who are looking to cut down on the amount of flesh products they're eating but they're not saying no to it completely. And often they're saying maybe they want to be vegetarian three or four days a week, or perhaps they only want to eat organic, or perhaps they only choose the meat that they really, really like. So let's just say they really like a good steak, then they would have that, but they wouldn't have um, a bit of ham in a sandwich because what's the point of that really? So flexitarian is about cutting down and how much they cut down will depend on the individual. Chantal, you made some really good points about travelers, especially when you travel with your partner, you know, that's two people, or if you travel with a small group. What advice would you give to countries that have heavily meat-based diets, like Spain and Argentina? They're known for their meat dishes, their pork dishes. Argentina is known for its grilled meats, and that's one of the reasons why people go there. Should they stop doing that, in your opinion, or how could they get on this vegetarian bandwagon in a way that was not ignoring their culinary heritage? Personally, yeah, I'd prefer they stop doing it completely. But realistically, that is not going to happen anytime soon. Although I have to say, I think it might happen in the future, probably not in my lifetime, but I suspect we will have a future where we eat very little, if any, of that kind of thing. But right now, for today, if you like, then I would say, no, you don't stop doing it because you're absolutely right. That is the reason why lots of people visit and it is part of what they would call their current heritage. I do get a little bit tired of this idea of, oh, it's tradition, because actually traditions change all the time. And lots of traditions don't actually go back that far. So I can't speak specifically for Argentina, but I don't think the tradition of eating beef is something that goes back, you know, right to the very dawn of time for them. It's something that is relatively, in the last few hundred years, relatively new. And that would be the same, for example, with us eating grouse, you know, grouse shooting. Grouse shooting in the UK is less than 100 years old. It's not really a tradition, and yet we argue that it is. So I think it's, number one would be, we're not going to get rid of it today, and I don't wouldn't even recommend that one did get rid of it today. But I do think let's stop getting so wound up on whether these things are really tradition or not, because traditions change all the time. Slavery was a tra tradition. Thankfully, we've got rid of that. Women not having the vote was tradition. Thankfully, we've got rid of that as well. Other traditions will also disappear and go by the wayside. Bullfighting in Spain is another tradition that is quickly going by the wayside. It is. And again, it's not necessarily that old either. But even if it does date back to the very dawn of time, that doesn't make it right. Killing an animal in that cruel way or harming an animal in that cruel way does not make it right any more than slavery was right just because we did it. Fortunately, we saw the error of our ways and realized that it was wrong. I think we, we need to kind of accept the fact that traditions move on and quite rightly so. So going back to your answer your question, no, let's not ditch the beef eating, for example, in countries like Argentina straight away. Remember that it's not just 
about the beef. There are other foods and there are lots of other great foods that Argentina and other countries that think of themselves as meat-based countries can produce. And how about, since we have an incredible culinary expertise these days in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before, come up with some new things, come up with some things that use ingredients that perhaps are very common in Argentina or in just ingredients that you like or perhaps a fusion of different types of dishes but take out the meat. Let's develop something new that people can get behind in these countries where vegetarians and vegans can go and say, wow, I had this amazing dish. It was incredible. And they would go home and talk about that in a way that would bring something new to the country, not just, yeah, I had great beef, but then, hey, it was Argentina. I expect to have great beef there. That's less of a conversation, whereas the conversation now could be, wow, they've come up with these incredible dishes with this fusion of different cuisines or these ingredients that I'd never tasted before or these plants that perhaps only grow in Argentina or some, somewhere in South America that I've never had as a European. All of these things give me an opportunity to talk about the destination in a way that's not currently being talked about. They give it a way to put themselves on the map separately from just their beef and they cater to a whole range of people who are looking to eat less or no meat at all. So I don't think it's about stopping it completely. Much as I said, personally, I'd love that to happen. I think it's about recognizing that the world is moving and that there are other, other opportunities out there. And this is an opportunity to be creative as well. I couldn't agree more, Chantal, with our home cooks who are hosts as well as, as, well as chefs that I know. They're so excited about the challenge to, to create something new and to show off their creativity rather than doing the same thing over and over again. And this is certainly one way to, you know, inspire people to do that. And I think that's certainly the way to go. I think so. And I think what's sad is that often hotel owners won't let the chefs do that. So I had a very interesting experience recently in Cape Breton in Nova Scotia, Canada. And we were in a lovely hotel, really, really beautiful high end hotel. The, there was a kind of a buffet type meal, which was very nice, but nothing that was vegetarian. I mean, which is amazing for a buffet. You'd think, wouldn't you, that at least you'd have something vegetarian on a buffet, but there wasn't. Uh, I spoke to the waitress and she called out the chef and the chef came and spoke to me. And I said, oh, you know, do you have something that's um, actually vegan? Because I thought, well, if I'm speaking to the chef direct, I'll go for vegan. Um, so I said, do you have anything that's vegan? And he was like, oh, well, yeah, we could do you some pasta or something. And I said, mm, yeah, okay. But really, that's a little bit boring, you know. So sort of, I didn't say it quite as rudely as that, perhaps, but I did kind of intimate that perhaps something more interesting would be nice. Anyway, it then transpired that the chef himself was vegan and actually three other of the people working in the kitchen were also vegan. And they absolutely wanted to do a whole range of vegan dishes, but the restaurant wouldn't let them. They would only let them do vegan risotto because as far as the hotel owner was concerned, that was the only vegetarian dish that counted, was vegetarian risotto. And yet you had four vegan chefs who were just gagging to do something else. So then I said to him, honestly, make me anything that you fancy making that you can make easily and with the ingredients you've got, and, and I will eat it. If it's vegan, I'll be happy with it. And what he made was amazing. It was this lovely combination of spicy chickpeas and different vegetables and so on. I mean, it, it, was, it was delicious. And all the meat eaters on my table were looking and going, wow, what have you got? Can I have some? Like, <laughs> no, you cannot. That's my meal. <laughs> we had that exact same experience in Greece, didn't we? Yes. Yes, where, exactly. Where you same. were ordering the vegetarian food and <laughs> I, I quickly became vegetarian that night. <laughs> yes. 
Because as you know, from sitting next to me, the food that came up was amazing. Why would you not want to eat these lovely, freshly griddled vegetables, you know, these gorgeous salads and things? Why would you not? So it is amazing how when the chef is given a little bit of flexibility, what incredible things they will create. Whereas I think too often, for some reason, and I don't know what this reason is, the hotel owner, whether it's because it's a big chain or whatever, I don't know, somehow restricts the chef from actually taking on that challenge full on and really producing something amazing. Because if the dish that I'd had, both in Cape Breton and in Greece, had been on the menu and you'd seen it, I think half the people on the table would have ordered it. Not everybody, sure. But a lot of people would have said, oh, gosh, that sounds really tasty. I'll give that. Our food at that meal and Alexandropolo, half the table was staring with envious eyes at what we were eating because it was so delicious. Yes, exactly. I don't understand why it is that there is so much restriction and sort of negativity towards it. Like somehow it's like, oh, God, don't, don't go there. Don't touch that. I think also a lot of people wouldn't even necessarily notice if a dish is described really well. And let's face it, that again is part of the skill of being a chef or running a restaurant is how you describe the dish. You don't just go, yeah, slab of meat on a plate with a bit of veg. You know, you call it a seared steak, you know, drizzled in honey or something cooked in a red wine sauce. It is partly about the description. Chantal, do you have a favorite vegetarian dish or meal that, that is just your most memorable? I pretty much will eat anything that's vegetarian. I've never really had a meal that's vegetarian or particularly that's vegan specifically that I have not liked. So I'm very easy in that sense. If you say to me it's vegan, I'll just go, yep, I'll be eating that, no problem. The things that I like the best are my partner cooks a really good moussaka because I do a bit partial to aubergines. So he mix, cooks a really lovely lentil moussaka, which I love. And I do a nut roast, which is very heavy on the nuts. Uh, which I also like, particularly when you have it with all the trimmings, you know, with the roast potatoes and beans and Brussels sprouts and all those kind of things. That's, that is particularly good. I do like those. In terms of traveling, difficult to say. I mean, I would say that, for example, the, the dish in Cape Breton, the dish in Greece, and also um, when I've been in Canada, I had a similar experience where the owner of the restaurant sort of said, said to the waiter and he said, oh, how about risotto? Oh, for goodness sake, tell the chef to cook us something decent. And I came back with this, or he came back, I should say, with this incredible meal that was called British Columbia on a plate, he called it. <laughs> and basically he'd taken loads of locally produced vegetables, locally grown vegetables, and cooked them in lots of different ways and then laid them out on the plate a little bit like a work of art. And that has always stuck in my mind as a meal that was particularly delicious, but also it was like a work of art to look at. It really was someone had put a painting on my plate in a sense, but a painting made of food. So I'm very lucky in that those occasions when the chef really has gone out of their way to do something, I've always had a meal where I've gone, wow, <laughs> definitely want to eat that. Another one actually that sticks in my mind is Berlin. I've mentioned Berlin a couple of times because it really is great for vegan food. But in Berlin, I found a place called Vona, which does, which only does vegan doner kebabs. Now I am not a big doner kebab fan under normal circumstances. Even when I ate meat, I think this is a bit weird, that meat on a stick thing. I have not had a doner kebab obviously for over 30 years. And there is something about the whole experience, the doner kebab experience. And uh, this place does vegan doner kebabs. And oh, wow, were they good. They were really 
really good. And even my me teaching friend who was with me said, yeah, okay, I would rather that to a normal doner kebab. And often it's about the experience, isn't it? It's not because doner kebabs are the most amazing food in the universe. It's about that experience of having something and really, really loving the flavors and the whole thing of being in Berlin and sitting outside and eating the doner kebab and so on. It's all part of the experience. Absolutely. Looking back, Chantal, is there a piece of advice that you would have given your younger self? <laughs> yeah, don't listen to other people. <laughs> and why is that? I think we get too wrapped up in what other people want us to be. So I am not saying, obviously, ignore every piece of advice you're ever given. That would be daft. And I find it very irritating when I'm speaking as an expert in my particular field and people don't want to listen because somehow they think they know better, even so they don't know anything about it. So I'm not trying to suggest that one does that. But I think you also have to remember that often people around you give you advice very well-meaning, but they do it for a variety of reasons. And those reasons are often not as altruistic as they appear. And I'm not suggesting that they're doing it deliberately to undermine you. But often we have a reason for wanting someone to, to do a particular thing because that's what we believe or that's where we want them to go or we would feel more comfortable with them doing it that way. Or we have our own agenda to push for whatever reason that is. And I think certainly in my 20s, I spent way, way, way too much time listening to what everybody else thought I should be rather than what I actually was. And that did not do me any good at all. And it took me a long time then to climb out of that and come back to actually, you know what, I'm kind of okay. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not. And there are certain things that I've made a very strong effort to try and change about myself in my life because they weren't things that I thought were particularly good or helpful or nice, particularly. At the end of the day, fundamentally, I'm kind of okay. And I think most of us, to be honest, are fundamentally okay. That doesn't mean there aren't things we shouldn't look to change and that perhaps we should be more gracious or more grateful or kinder to people or more compassionate. There's always things we can change. But fundamentally, most of us, unfortunately not all of us, but most of us are decent people. And that's the thing we should hang on to is that we are actually okay. And now let's look at the little things that we'd like to change and let's make our decisions to change them, not because other people think we should be in a particular way. If I had one piece of advice to, to tell my 20-year-old self, it would be close your ears, stop listening, just get on being you. That's a wonderful advice and well said, Chantal. And looking into the future now, what legacy do you hope to leave behind? If I could really wave a magic wand today, then I would stop all meat eating. That's what I would love to do. It would be fantastic if by the time I leave, we weren't eating meat anymore. That is not going to happen. I recognize that completely. So what I would like to be able to do is at least look back and say, we are eating less meat. We're more aware of the impact that our meat eating has both on ourselves, on the animals and on the planet in general. And I would like to be able to think that I made some contribution to reducing the amount of meat that we consume as a population, as in a global population. And I think that's very difficult because of course population is growing all the time. So even as you start to reduce the meat consumption, the more people come up, it kind of meat consumption goes up again and so on. So it is a difficult one. But I still think that overall we are seeing a reduction and I hope we continue to see that reduction. And I hope that I can lie there on my deathbed and think, yeah, you made a little bit of an impact on that. Maybe not the biggest impact in the universe, but you made a bit of an impact. That would be a legacy I really would like to leave behind. 
Chantel, should we put on your epitaph, has that got meat on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll be right. That's about right, I think, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be your quote. Then what would be an inspirational quote from someone else that you really love or that's really inspired you? My favorite quote and the quote that I absolutely try my very best to live by as much as I possibly can is, and I believe it's attributed to Edmund Burke, although there is some confusion over exactly who said it first, but it's basically the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to stand back and do nothing. And I think that is absolutely the case when we see something that's not right. Don't just stand back and go, oh, well, not much I can do, not to worry, because that is a good person standing back and letting evil continue. It comes back to what you were saying about you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And I think that's what that quote really says. So for me, it's like if I see wrong, whatever wrong happens to be, injustice, something not being quite the way that it should, something that's damaging, something that's cruel, then I have to stand up and say something because otherwise I am, I am basically condoning it. And if I'm condoning it, then I am definitely part of its problem. And just to hear a little bit more about you, do you have a favorite book that you're reading or that you have read? So I'm a real sci-fi and fantasy fan. Uh, those are the sorts of things that I love reading. I know that's often people sort of go, what, sci-fi and fantasy? But yeah, I really, really love it. I love the creativity. I love the idea of what things might be like in the future. I love that thought about the different technologies that we may or of course may not have. I love the exploration because it feels a little bit like the planet has been explored. And although I haven't seen anywhere near all of it, and I hope throughout my life I'll get to see more and more of it, there is that thing about, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to go to another planet and be the first to be there or to be one of, among the first to explore it. So I do love the whole sci-fi genre. I also really like fantasy because I basically love fairies and princesses and galloping horses and things like that. So, <laughs> so I love that part of it as well. But most fantasy novels do come with a bit of, you know, sword fighting and to it as well. So they're quite tough. Those are the ones I tend to like more rather than the fairy tales. I think the takeaway here from the, the whole sci-fi fantasy thing is, like you said, it's the looking forward to the future and what the possibilities hold for us. And in many ways, your entire career is about that. You are taking humanity, you're taking consumerism, you're taking travelers to the next level by opening their minds with the idea that it's okay to be vegetarian, that it's okay to be vegan. And not just that, but take that behavior with you on the road and help to educate others wherever you might be with that same exact message. That's a lovely way to describe it. And I really do hope that is exactly what I'm doing. Thank you. So Chantal, if people want to learn more about you or listen to your radio show, where can they go? So the best place is our website, so passionfortheplanet.com. All not all proper words, no numbers in it, so passionfortheplanet.com. And there you can listen to the radio station live. It streams live off the website. Or you can choose individual interviews if you just want to download a particular interview and listen to that rather than listen to the whole station. And there are lots of articles on there as well on a variety of green, vegan, travel, conservation, animal welfare, etc. issues. We try to do pieces that bring something new to it or kind of educate and inform as well. So those are the sorts of pieces you're likely to find both on the website and when you listen to the radio station. And if you do listen to the radio station, the whole thing, rather than just downloading a podcast, then it's mixed in with music from around the world. So we play a lot of world music from a variety of different countries. So you'll hear quite a lot of non-English language stuff, but mixed in with English language adult contemporary music as well. So if you like 
one of the types of pieces of music you play, we play, then the chances are you will like the type of everything else that we play. And we know we can't please everybody all of the time, which is why those interviews are there as independent downloads. But hopefully lots of people will also enjoy the music and be introduced to something a bit different. Certainly when we started the station, I'd never listened to any world music before. You know, I listened to the general, normal kind of adult contemporary pop stuff. And then I got introduced to this music that's coming out of other countries in different languages, particularly a lot of Indian music. Um, German actually, Germany has a lot of good music in the Netherlands. It was like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. And it's really, really good stuff. So hopefully the music will also widen your horizons a little bit. Well, I guess you know what I'm going to be streaming tomorrow at the office. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> While you drink out of your non-paper cup. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fentanyl, you've been fantastic. Fascinating stories. Great to reconnect with you. Really have a lot of respect for what you're doing. And I look forward to our next vegetarian or vegan meal uh, somewhere outside the country. I look forward to it as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chantal. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, eat well and travel better.